Well, thank you. It is, is great to be here, and, and, and thanks to the Society of Cincinnati for co-sponsoring this event. It's, uh, Boston is where this, what this book is about, and it's where I was born, but I have to admit, I grew up in that maritime center of the universe, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and it was in fifth grade at Linden Elementary School that, in retrospect, I read the book that would change my life, uh, Johnny Tremaine. By God bless Esther Forbes. I mean, this was the book with which I began to realize history is not about dates. It's not about statues in the corners of museums gathering dust. It's about real-life people, ordinary people, like Johnny, like me, anybody, in the midst of extraordinary events. And, and it's really interesting. I was blessed to have a great APUS history teacher, Miss Wilt. She will always be Miss Wilt. We exchange Christmas cards to this day. And uh, she, she kept that interest in history alive. But I have to admit, I was an English major in college and grad school. And let's fast forward to 1984. My wife, uh, who has just finished three years at Columbia Law School, has her first job as a lawyer in Boston. And so we moved to the North End. Uh, we have an 18-month-old daughter, Jenny. And I am at this point, I've, I've worked for a sailing magazine for four years and have just finished up a freelance project as editor-in-chief of that illustrious one-time parody of a magazine, Yachting, with two A's and no C. Uh, hey, it was, the, it was the 1980s. And But my real job was taking care of Jenny. And quickly, we established a routine by which I would spend afternoons pushing Jenny's stroller through the crooked streets of the North End. And inevitably, we would always make our way to the, up to Copps Hill uh, burial ground. Yeah, that is the nodal point. That is where history, that's the vortex, I, th I feel, of history in Boston, where you stand up there and you look out and you see the harbor spread out before you. You see the Charlestown Peninsula and the Bunker Hill Monument. And, you know, there are these canted crooked stones. Uh, one of the best ones is Daniel Malcolm, a noted patriot who died just a few years before the revolution would explode in Boston. And uh, during the, the British occupation, uh, the, so the story goes, they use the, 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 uh, the stone is adorned with patriot rhetoric, and the regulars used it for target practice. And you can see the, the, the dents and, and chips uh, created by the musket balls. It's just a great place. And I began to, you know, what was Boston like in the time of Johnny Tremaine? And so that fall, every Sunday, I'd take the tea to the Boston Public Library, and I began to research the history of Boston. It was really my first foray uh, into history, and with a particular interest in the topographical evolution of, of Boston. As you know, we all know, Boston in 1775 bore absolutely no resemblance to Boston today. It was a 1.1 square mile island dominated by three hills of mountainous proportions. You know, here we are on, on Beacon Hill, which is just a shadow of what it once was. Uh, they were all shaved down and used for fill. This was when the Back Bay wasn't a neighborhood. It was the Back Bay, water-lapped uh, Boston Common. It was from the edge of Boston Common that the, the 500 British regulars would set out on the night of April 18th towards Concord. And um, it was connected by a thin neck of land to Roxbury. Uh, on spring high tides, uh, it would actually be washed over, creating a literal island. 15,000 people 
divided into the north end and the south end with a, a stream running through a mill, da uh, mill dam. Uh, the causeway is where the dam was. And if you walk Washington Street into the financial district, you're following along where that thin neck of, ne neck of land was. And I live on Nantucket Island, have for 28 years, and Nantucket Island has a population pretty close to what Boston was at this time of 15,000. And I can tell you from experience, when you're living on an island with a group of people of that size, you get to know just about everyone. Um, and, and in fact, we have testimony from someone from Philadelphia during the Revolution, which had a much larger population, that he knew the name of literally everyone. And you, you, know, you begin to see how personal it was. You know, I grew up thinking of the uh, Revolution as kind of this ideologically driven event based on eloquent speeches in the Continental Congress. And it was just a, you know, it was a thing of, of principles rather than of passions and violence. And when I decided to, to research the book uh, Bunker Hill, which in many ways is a follow-up to an earlier book of mine, Mayflower, uh, which takes the, the voyage of the pilgrims to the second generation, uh, uh, because the children always seem to mess it up. And um, with this terrible war, King Philip's War, fought almost precisely 100 years before the revolution, 1675 and 76. And, and I, I began to realize with that that, um, you know, uh, there was a lot of unfinished business in those, those Indian wars of the 17th century that would extend into the century to come. Uh, when uh, during, in the midst of King Philip's War, which was just this devastating conflict, a third of the towns in, in, in Massachusetts were burned and abandoned. I mean, there was even talk of creating a bridge, uh, a, a, a wall around which uh, the white population would defend itself and surrender the rest of, of the colony to the native population. It was that bad. And in the midst of this, an emissary from the king talked to Governor Leverett about, you know, how things are going. And he had the temerity to say that uh, let the king know that if he wants to extend our liberties, that's just fine. And does he know that our general court has sovereignty over us, in fact, over anything Parliament might try to uh, impose upon us. And here he was, a hundred years before the revolution, basically saying exactly what his descendants would be saying uh, in, in the 18th century. And so with Bunker Hill, I began to realize, you know, this was not, this was initially a deeply conservative uh, impulse. It was to keep things the way they had always been because they had been very good in the colonies uh, in terms of uh, they were the freest, least taxed people in the British Empire. Uh, Lord North, a uh, prime minister of, of, of Great Britain, estimated that the average colonist paid one-fiftieth of the taxes of a Londoner. And yet Great Britain was in, hobbled by terrible debt, much of it accumulated during the fighting of the French and Indian War, 15 years before, fought by and large on New England's behalf, eliminating the threat of, of the French uh, to the north. And uh, so they felt that you know, the taxes that they tried to impose with the Stamp Act in 1765 and, and with subsequent measures was not a question of imposing tyranny on the colonies. This was just bringing fiscal responsibility. They were, they were tuning up the empire to become the great force it would be in the 19th century. You know, their, se their sense of the sovereignty of parliament was based on principles by which this is, was a check 
to the potential uh, overweening powers of the monarch. And so when they talked about sovereignty of parliament, it was not, you know, some tyrannical. It was essential to the English liberties that it allowed New Englanders to flourish so, so well. And now the New Englanders, of course, had a very different point of view. Uh, many of them were descended from Puritans who had come in the 17th century to escape uh, the over the reach of the king and his bishops so they could worship as they pleased. They were not, they did not come here in search of religious freedom. Uh, the Quakers quickly found that out when several of them were hanged here on Boston Common. A sense of religious certitude uh, was built, hardwired into their, their, their DNA. A sense of autonomy. We came here to do it on our own and we have created this society, what John Winthrop called this city on a hill, uh, uh, on our own, no thanks to this island 3,000 miles away on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, how dare you now, at this belated moment, begin to try to tax us? Uh, and, and once again, there's no talk of independence. This was about, you know, no taxation without representation. They viewed these as, as newfangled innovations, was the term. They objected to that. They wanted it the way it had been. And so tensions begin to, to mount. There's the Boston Massacre on March 5th, 1770. But two years later, uh, by the fall of 1772, Samuel Adams, who is kind of the Svengali of the, uh, patri the patriot movement, is worried. All of the momentum that they had built is, is, is dissipating. This could just blow over. Um, there's, a, there's a distressing calm and quiet coming to Massachusetts. And it's then that he invents the institution that I think made, uh, did more than anything to make the revolution ultimately unfold, the 21-member Boston Committee of Correspondence. And this was, this 21-member committee uh, would pen open letters discussing the issues of the day. Does Parliament have sovereignty over us? Uh, and then sending these letters out to the more than 250 towns throughout Massachusetts. And now remember, this was when Massachusetts included modern Maine. Now on Nantucket, we still have that beloved institution of the town meeting. And I can tell you from experience, there are, this is a, a democracy at its combative best. <laughs> where well-known personalities in the community come to the fore, issues are discussed and, you know, belittled, championed, until finally a decision is arrived. It, this is democracy. Consensus comes. But up until this point, uh, it was a purely local institution, talking about, you know, bridge repair and widening roads, those kinds of things. With the invention of the Boston Committee of Correspondence in those letters, Suddenly, these became forums in which these letters were read and the ish political issues of the day were discussed. Samuel Adams had created an autonomous network of communication outside of the royal realm, outside of, of the control of that. He was turning these town meetings into the 18th century equivalent of chat rooms. And they began to get letters back. By January of 1773, from the town of Gorham, uh, now Maine, uh, just about five, ten miles inland from West Portland, this was a town founded by the descendants of King Philip War veterans. It had been attacked uh, 
by Native peoples 15 years before several uh, townspeople killed, several abducted. And in their letter uh, to the Boston Committee of Correspondence, they say, you know, we are humble farmers. We cannot pretend to understand the subtleties involved with Parliament and all of these discussions. But we do know what it is to fight defend, to defend our way of life. Our houses are still stained with the blood of those who died defending our liberties. Our swords are still sharpened. Our women still know how to make the cartridges that go into the muskets that we carry with us each day when we farm. And if we must fight once again to defend those liberties, we will fight. And what Samuel Adams and the others in Boston began to realize is the real radicals weren't in Boston. They were out there in those 250 what were known as country towns. And these guys, because of the more than century-old tradition of the town militia, were armed. They, and then many of them were experienced officers in, in the, 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 the wars that came up to this. You know, they were transferring what everything that had, all those Indian wars were now being transformed, all of that was now being transformed to the new enemy, not to the north, but to, to, the, to the east on the other side of the Atlantic. And if it ever came to war, Samuel Adams knew where his army would come from. My book begins with the, the, uh, the Boston Tea Party. And you know, I grew up thinking that was the product of this onerous tax uh, that uh, we, you know, and we threw the, the uh, tea into the ocean. It, like most things in history, it's a little more complicated than that. Actually, there was a surplus of tea in England. The East India Company, the monopoly that sold British tea, wanted to get rid of it. So they decided to lower the price by a third. They added an infinitesimal tax. But the fact of the matter is, this was a windfall for the colonial consumer. However, many Boston Patriot merchants had made a good deal of money in the past years by smuggling in cheap Dutch tea from the East Indies. Now the English tea undersold their tea, embracing their, the ideological imperative. They decided that this tea would not land in Boston. It was dumped in Boston Harbor in December. Uh, Benjamin Franklin in England, who is a colonial advocate in Parliament, uh, immediately says, the, says what's the, the, the reasonable response? Well, why don't they just pay for the tea? You know, it's very difficult to make uh, exact uh, references to what things were worth back then to today's dollars, but it's been estimated that if you came up with a figure, the tea thrown into Boston Harbor would be the equivalent of today of about $800,000, well within the reach of the, the, the merchant uh, uh, community. Why not pay for them? Well, Samuel Adams did not want to solve this particular problem. He wanted to exploit it for political purposes. And then the, the British government played exactly into his hands by over-responding in a ham-fisted way with the Boston Port Act, which shut down the Port of Boston as a, as a commercial entity. No ships would leave. No ships would come bearing goods. In June, uh, May of 1774, a new royal governor arrives in Boston. 
General Thomas Gage. He's also the commander of the British troops in North America. And I have to say, I had a lot of sympathy for Thomas Gage. Uh, he was placed in a very difficult situation, and he was someone who came with a with a quite a bit of experience in the colonies. He had lived in the, America for the last 19 years. Uh, he was married to a girl from Jersey. Uh, their kids had been uh, born in in America. And, he, you know, he, he was, but he suffered under the illusion that if you could shut down the Patriot uprising in Boston by bringing in thousands of British regulars and occupying the city, you'd snuff it out. What he was not taking in account, nor really many, m many people in England, was that all these country towns. He arrives, institutes the, the Boston Port Act. Boston is shut down. Uh, and then uh, Britain makes uh, it even easier for Samuel Adams with the, an, the series of what would be known as the Intolerable Acts, the Massachusetts Government Act, which, among other things, um, makes illegal the town meeting. You don't do that in Massachusetts. <laughs> what happens in all those country towns? Mobs arise, and they, they, they go to... Uh, royal appointees and insist that they disavow, uh, you know, their, their, their connection with, with the king. I mean, you know, and, and so violence is happening all over the colony, and more and more uh, loyalists are flooding into Boston, which is becoming a city of refuge. Gage begins to realize, wow, uh, this, is, this is way beyond Boston. And then by the end of August, it's come down to a race. If this does lead to war, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a matter of who has the most gunpowder. Because gunpowder at this time comes only pretty much from England. And if this comes to a war, Great Britain's going to stop exporting uh, gunpowder to the colonies. Gage, for his part, is rounding up as much of the royal supplies as he can before they fall into patriot hands. And uh, in end of August, he learns of a good amount of, of powder at the Stone Powder House in what's now Somerville. Uh, the powder house is still there. Many of you may be familiar with it. And he puts together a secret operation where at night 300 British regulars are loaded into boats, rowed up Mystic River, and at night are off, disembark. They march to the powder house where they wait till dawn. Apparently, you do not go into a powder house with a candle. <laughs> the sun arrives. They go into the powder house. They get the powder. They put it in their boats. They go down the Mystic to Castle Island. It's no longer an island, but the, that fort is still there where a regiment of soldiers were there and where there was a magazine of the, the royal powder. It was an absolutely flawless operation, except for one thing. A rumor was going around that when the British regulars were taking the powder, they were opposed by the Cambridge militia. Shots were fired, and several militiamen fell. It didn't happen, but that didn't prevent the rumor from spreading from town to town to town. By that night, every town within a 40-mile radius of Boston was alive with the outrage over their fallen brethren in Cambridge. By the next morning, thousands of militiamen were streaming towards Cambridge. By that afternoon, there are estimated 4,000 militiamen in, on, the, on the Cambridge Green. This is when Cambridge had a, a population of a third of that. 
They quickly realize that no one has died, but now they're going to take care of business. They round up the, the British, the, the royal appointees on the steps of, of the courthouse and under a hot sun make them recant. The word goes to the Boston Committee of Correspondence, which is pretty much operating as the presiding presence in the Patriot movement at this time. We need help. Someone better calm these people down. Well, there are three names that are commonly associated with the revolution in Boston. It's the big three. It's John Adams, John Hancock, and Samuel Adams. The truth is that whenever anything was happening on the ground with the revolution, they were either on their way or attending the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. They weren't there. So who do you call? Well, the call goes out uh, to a 33-year-old doctor named Joseph Warren, a widower with four children between the ages of two and eight. Uh, he is John Adams' personal physician. Uh, just a little while earlier, he had uh, his son, John Quincy Adams, had fractured his forefinger on his right hand. They were fearful he might lose the finger, but, John, but Joseph Warren had saved it. Joseph Warren's younger brother, John, would found that, that institution known as Mass General. I mean, this is an extraordinary family. And um, he had spent the last year, 10 years, really sort of learning at the knee of Samuel Adams when it came to political activism. And so he, with others, goes over to Cambridge. They calm things down. It's aided by a shower of rain and one, a, a potential disaster averted. A few weeks later, Joseph Warren pens uh, a, the document known as the Suffolk Resolves, which he reads before a, a packed house uh, in Milton. And uh, then his good friend, Paul Revere, rides the Suffolk, take, delivers the Suffolk Resolves 300 miles south to Philadelphia. The Continental Congress has just sat. No one knows what's going to happen. No one knows, you know, what... Never in the past have 13 colonies begin to do anything in any kind of cooperative fashion. And this is a radical document. This is a line in the sand. This says, you know, if this continues, we will fight. It's read before the delegates to the Congress, and it's unanimously endorsed. Suddenly, this group is acting together and in an unpredicted direction. And this is a documented penned by Joseph Warren. The fall of 1774 and the winter of 1775, tensions are arising as, as, rising as more and more British soldiers arrive. There would ultimately be close to 9,000 British regulars in Boston. I mean, this is just a huge force in a city of 15,000. More as t uh, fights are breaking out uh, at night in the streets, more and more patriot families are leaving uh, the city, fearful of what's going to happen. And by March 5th, this is the anniversary of the Boston Massacre. And ever since that massacre, there has been an annual oration to, to memorialize those who have fallen and as a protest to standing armies. Boston has a standing army of several thousand there. To have this oration delivered is a potentially catastrophic event. But nonetheless, it's decided to go forward with it. The 5th is a Sunday, so it's delivered on March 6th at the Old South meeting. And guess who's going to deliver it? None other than Joseph Warren. 5,000 people are at the Old South meeting by 11 o'clock that morning. That's a third of the the. the city's population. There are all, and every man, every Bostonian, it's, it is reported, has a cudgel 
in case things get to, to, to violence. There are 40 British regulars in attendance. Samuel Adams makes sure these officers are crowded right in front of where the speaker will be standing. And there's no room to get in through the aisles. And so, in dramatic fashion, Joseph Warren enters through the back window. And get this, it's reported that he is dressed in a toga. <laughs> this guy had a flair for the dramatic. This was a different kind of patriot leader. He delivers this wonderfully eloquent speech. That Warren's handwritten copy of it is the Mass at the Massachusetts Historical Society. And it's just fascinating to see this. And, and the best paragraph, as you can tell, is a late insert. You know, you can, you know it's right over there. And, and you know, he's, he's got his toga on. He's got a handkerchief on one hand. And as, as the, the loyalist observers would say, he spoke with that Puritan wine you know, that was known you know, as the claims. And, and at one point in the middle of a speech, one of those British regulars in an act of defiance raises his fist, opens it, and on his open palm are several lead bullets. What does Warren do? Without skipping a beat, he drops his handkerchief upon the bullets. The crowd loves it. He finishes a speech. What could... What could have been an incendiary speech, if Samuel Adams had delivered this, this would have ended up in chaos. What could have been was is actually something that took the high ground. There was obvious tensions, but they got through it. Let's move to early April 1775. Now, it's getting really scary. Uh, it's, it's so dangerous in the city that by April 18, every patriot leader has left the city, except for one man, Joseph Warren. You know, we've all heard of Paul Revere alerting the countryside that the regulars are headed to Concord. Well, who gave him the order? Joseph Warren, who uh, in the, the evening of April 18th learns of, of Gage's supposedly secret plot to send 500 British regulars on a mission to Concord where they are to, to uh, where the patriots have collected cannon and other, uh, other armaments and provisions that's the that's a lightning strike very similar to what, to what had happened at, that incited what was known as the powder alarm uh, more than six months before. And so Warren discovers, learns of this, and he pushes the button that will start the revolution. Not only does his good friend Paul Revere head out, but William Dawes takes the land route across the neck. The countryside is alerted. And then when Warren awakes the next morning and learns that eight Militiamen have been killed at Lexington when they confronted the British regulars on their way to Concord. He is able to escape the city. How he got across the Charles River is, is kind of a marvel. He attends a committee of safety meeting. Uh, the committee of safety was operating as the, 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 the organization that was organizing uh, the provincial, what would become the provincial army. And then he makes his way to Lexington where he intercepts, where he's there by the time the British regulars who have made their way to Concord and are now fighting their way house by house back towards Boston, they are now coming through Lexington and Warren is there. And what's now the town of, uh, and Warren was apparently quite a snappy dresser. He, um, uh, it's common, uh, commented on by several uh, observers of the time. And, you know, he wore these horizontal curls that looked, that was very popular back then and, and had apparently two hairpins, you know, holding everything in place. 
And in the town of Arlington, a British musket ball takes one of those pins out. Word goes, whoa, you hear about Warren? He put himself so squarely in harm's way. That is, you know, this is a different kind of patriot leader. By the next morning, thousands of militiamen have flooded into Cambridge and into Roxbury, where they become the two centers of the army, almost literally surrounding Boston, which by this time the British regulars have reentered, and this now becomes a city under siege. Uh, the British Navy, which has a, a very big presence in Boston Harbor, will maintain a lifeline out for the British Army. But when it comes to all of the land, uh, they are pretty much surrounded. The Provincial Congress, which has been sitting in Concord, relocates to Watertown, so it can be closer to the military headquarters in Cambridge. They elect a new president, 33-year-old Joseph Warren. He's also the leading member of the Committee of Safety, which now operates as kind of the executive branch of the provincial government. I mean, and he's, he literally has to be in two places at once. At one point, the Provincial Congress sends him a letter saying, uh, you know, we, we're waiting. Come over. You know, we cannot continue without you. And, you know, he said, oh, hey, well, you know, he's just trying. He has to be everywhere. Through his personality, he is holding this this, this, the centrifugal forces of this chaotic scene together. I mean, the 90 days after Lexington and Concord are amazing, where not only are, are they trying to create a new army, but there's flare-ups of violence. Uh, there's the Battle of Chelsea Creek, in which the first British naval vessel is taken and burned by colonial forces. And Joseph Warren is there, you know, but he's also attending the Provincial Congress, and, uh, he, and he's also very involved with uh, troop morale. And by June, he is uh, appointed a major general. By the middle of, of June, uh, it's learned that the British are contemplating, are, are planning a strike, a foray out of Boston, in which they hope to uh, storm into Cambridge, send this motley group of militiamen reeling, and stopping this once and for all. In an effort to delay that, the decision is made uh, to build an earthen fort, a redoubt, atop Bunker Hill, the largest hill in the center of the Charlestown Peninsula. At the night of, of June 16, 1775, William Prescott leads 1,000 militiamen, uh, uh, provincial soldiers we'll call them, across the neck to the, onto the Charlestown Peninsula at night, for reasons that are still obscure, instead of stopping at the bunker at Bunker Hill, he continues marching south, a half mile to a much smaller hill, Breed's Hill, uh, overlooking the now abandoned city of Charlestown, uh, right in the figurative face of the British in Boston, just a half mile on the other side of Boston Harbor. When Don arrives. Gage sees a fort atop this hill upon a cannon mounted here can not only fire upon Boston, but can fire upon all the British vessels that are anchored around the Charlestown Peninsula, which are now firing on this earthen redoubt. Within a few minutes, one of those cannonballs uh, takes the head off of one of Prescott's soldiers. This is not good for the morale of his exhausted Militiaman, he leaps to the ramparts of his earthen redoubt and in very dramatic fashion, you know, bids defiance to the British in Boston. Gage decides he has no choice but to attack. 
And this creates a panic back in Cambridge. This operation was not designed to provoke an attack. It was designed to delay an attack. And now it looks like there's going to be attack imminent. You know, we watch things on TV in real time that are historic that we cannot believe what we're watching. You know, we are a part of the events unfolding. And the truth is what would become the Battle of Bunker Hill was a lot like that. It was a spectator, of a terrifying spectator event. Because as William Howe, who would direct the on-the-ground operations in Charlestown, assembled his army of about 2,000 regulars in Boston, and the British and the American uh, forces begin to realize, whoa, we've got a battle on our hands, begin to then expand their fortifications along the entire width of the Charlestown Peninsula, adding a breastwork to that earthen redoubt, and then the rail fence that would take it almost all the way to the Mystic River. As all of this is happening, people are watching. Uh, the residents of Boston take to the roofs, take to the cupolas and the steeples of the churches and are watching. Uh, as, as, the, as the British for, uh, ships are firing on the American forces. And my book begins with an account of seven-year-old John Quincy Adams and his 31-year-old mother Abigail standing on a hill beside their home in Braintree, watching as the British fire upon uh, uh, the Charlestown Peninsula, a, something that so traumatized him he would never forget. And they were just one of thousands watching. General John Burgoyne, a British general, one of the more arrogant British generals, and, and that's saying something, uh, was, a, was atop Copse Hill, where I was with my daughter, uh, which was now a battery of cannon. And he describes in a wonderful letter the feelings that they all have watching as these British regulars are rowed across the Boston Harbor and then assemble along the edge of the Charlestown Peninsula, facing the rebels that are digging in you know, he describes this, you know, their emotions as knowing that the fate of the English-speaking world may hinge on what is about to happen. And then to add to the drama, uh, the British fire an incendiary shell into Charlestown. It bursts into flame. Burgoyne describes how, as the steeple of the church is a pyramid of flame, and then which collapses and into the inferno of Charlestown as a huge plume of smoke looms over the British regulars as with their bayonets they march towards the provincials dug in across the width of the Charlestown Peninsula. Now, the expectation on the British side was that if faced with the awesome, terrifying spectacle of a British bayonet charge, they would run. I mean, who could face that uh, without any kind of military training? The Americans had a different view. Uh, we've all heard the phrase, Do not fire, don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes. Uh, well, you know, the, the historical thread that connects it to a specific officer is a, may not be, exist. Uh, we do know that one officer uh, referred to the British soldiers had a kind of splash guard on their feet and ankles known as half gaiters. And we do know one officer said, do not fire till you see the whites of their half gaiters. It doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Uh, but it does have the same meaning in which they had their, their supplies of gunpowder were low. They needed every musket ball to count. And for that to happen, they had to wait to the last possible moment until these British regulars were within 30 yards of their position. 
And so up goes Howe uh, with with his his army, and uh, the the. They, and the Patriots do not run. They deliver a devastating volley that sends these British regulars reeling down, back down the, the hill. Howe, who literally led his men, uh, reorganizes them. Let's do this again. Once again, they confront a devastating volley. Uh, how uh, we have reports from both sides that every officer uh, in Howe's staff was killed or wounded. The servant holding a bottle of wine, that wine bottle was even hit by a musket ball. And there was Howe, resplendent in his scarlet uniform within yards of the American line all alone. It's a miracle he wasn't killed. And in a letter he would later write to someone in England, he, uh, for, the, for a man who's extremely taciturn, he made the amazing confession that once he realized he might lose this thing, uh, he had a feeling he had never felt before. He makes his way back down to the, the edge of the peninsula with the rest of his men. He reorganizes them. Instead of a wide line, they go into narrower columns, presenting less of a target for those militiamen. They shed their packs. The, by this time, the, the, the grenadiers and the light infantry are angry. You know, so many of their, of, you know, the, of their friends are dead. Uh, they're angry. Conquer or die is what they are shouting to one another. And up they go again. This time, um, uh, the, and on this third and last British charge, the Americans begin to run out of gunpowder. With their, uh, with their uh, swords in one hand and their muskets in another, the grenadiers leap over uh, the walls of that earthen redoubt and uh, turning it into a just a terrifying, uh, claustrophobic, smoke-filled scene of horror. And that is the last, and there is Joseph Warren. Uh, he's last seen rallying his men. And it's later discovered after the Americans have retreated to Cambridge that he died during that third and last British charge. Uh, just a, a terrible loss to the American forces. But as Howe <clears throat> would admit, uh, later, uh, it was this was a nominal British victory, but it was too dearly bought. He had suffered casualties of close to 50 percent. What would become known as the War of Independence would go on for eight years. This is the bloodiest battle of all of those confrontations, and it ha and this changed everything. Up in you know, Lexington and Concord were skirmishes. This was a true battle. This was war. Two and a half weeks later none other than George Washington arrives on the scene. And, George, and, you know, this is not the George Washington that looks at us from the dollar bill. This is a George Washington in his 40s. He is young. He is fired up. He is a, and he wants to attack the British in Boston because when he sees this army, he is not impressed. <laughs> These New Englanders are very different from the way they, they make them down in Virginia, a largely hierarchical society where people know their place. And when orders are delivered, orders are followed. In New England, the, the typical response to an order from an officer is, thanks to the town meeting, whoa, wait a minute. 
We will discuss whether we want to do what you have just asked us to do, and if we agree with that, we would be happy to comply. This attitude drove Washington nuts. Uh, how am I going to make a professional army out of this group of militiamen who, you know, do not think of themselves as a part of a glorious cause? They think of themselves as from Massachusetts and or New Hampshire or Connecticut. And if you're from Connecticut, you don't like the people from Massachusetts. Or you know, it's it's this is there. This is groups of tribes that have ancient hatreds and, and alliances. And and for them to think outside of their very, what they see as a very personal beef with the British Crown is very difficult. And yet this is where Washington begins the, that slow work of taking a group of people who had never thought of themselves as anything larger than really the residents of the town, which they call home, makes them begin to think of themselves as something out of perhaps what might be a new country. Um, the, the Washington has a lot of challenges, uh, not only recruitment and, and re-enlistment, but his artillery regiment has been an embarrassment, uh, particularly on the Bunker Hill. Uh, uh, many of the officers fled in panic. He needs to clean house. He needs a new officer to apply a whole new um, approach. And it's in September of 1775 when he uh, is inspecting the fortifications in Roxbury that he meets a young 25-year-old officer, former bookseller, God bless booksellers, <laughs> uh, named, named Henry Knox. Uh, Henry Knox admits that everything he knows about the military he read in the books in his bookstore. Um, uh, he is uh, about as tall as Washington, but uh, but roly-poly and has that twinkle in his eye. You know, he just has something, has a spark. And Washington begins to wonder, is this the guy to take over the artillery regiment? And he, he discusses this with, with John Adams, and, um, and uh, who's at the Continental Congress. And, and um, he begins to think, yes, this might be the man. But he also knows that if he announces this to this army, they will create a firestorm. You do not put a 25-year-old, you know, make a 25-year-old colonel head of the artillery. There are plenty of men who consider them the obvious choices. So before this is announced, Washington sends Henry Knox on a secret operation. What they need more than anything, he can't attack the British because he doesn't have enough gunpowder and he doesn't have the cannons he needs to dislodge them from that, the city. 300 miles to the northwest at the southern tip of Lake Champlain is Fort Ticonderoga where there are more than 20 tons of cannons. This is exactly what he needs but it's 300 miles away. So in November, he sends Henry Knox and his younger brother, William, who make their way to New York City and then up the Hudson and ultimately to Fort Ticonderoga. And there they begin to construct huge wooden sleds, sledges, and round up herds of oxen and horses and wait for it to snow. The snow falls. They load up the cannon on these huge sledges. And the caravan begins, making its way down the frozen Hudson River uh, at Albany. One of the larger cannon falls through the ice. Uh, the residents of Albany help them retrieve the cannon. After, after this, the, uh, uh, that cannon is known as the Albany. 
And then they make their way across the entire width of Massachusetts. Going up the hills, uh, going up the mountains in the Berkshires was tough, but going down was really where it was difficult, where the sledges threatened to overrun the oxen. And yet somehow, by the end of January, Henry Knox delivers all of these cannons to the town of Framingham. By this time, the announcement has been made. The predicted firestorm has raged. Many officers have threatened to resign. But now, everyone has to admit that this 25-year-old kid is capable of wonders. And then, on March 5th, the, uh, the, the, the day of the, the, of the Boston Massacre, in an operation that was everything what preceded the Battle of Bunker Hill could have been, Washington's army atop the Dorchester Heights, in, in a brilliant nighttime operation, builds two forts, puts several of those cannons uh, brought by Henry Knox atop them. And the next morning, when William Howe, who's now taken over command of the British military uh, from, from Gage, looks, he realizes that they have him. He's tempted to attack. He even rounds up his army. But through the intervention of a storm and his better judgment, he realizes that if he attacks, it's just going to be another Bunker Hill. And it's agreed informally that if the British do not burn Boston, the Americans will let them leave peacefully. And so, on March 17, 1776, yes, it's St. Patrick's Day, but as all good Bostonians know, it is also Evacuation Day. <laughs> the almost 9,000 British Army would uh, load into 150 vessels, accompanied by more than 1,000 loyalists, and in the subsequent weeks would sail off, never to be heard from again. The, um, the citizens of Boston returned to their homes uh, in the weeks afterwards. Uh, they discover the Old South meeting has uh, had the pews ripped out of it, manure spread around the floor and turned into a British writing school. Uh, one of the churches has been consumed, have been completely used up for firewood, but it is largely left standing, and they begin to rebuild. And then, in July of 1776, comes word of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. This Now, everything has changed. Up until this point, even during the Battle of Bunker Hill, they were not talking about independence. In fact, the Union Jack was something that they looked to as a sign of union among the colonies. Uh, you know, they, they regarded, they claimed up, you know, through that period that they were loyal to the British king. It was the ministry, the, the parliament that they objected to. They referred to the British forces as a ministerial army. This drove the British soldiers crazy, you know, and, and King George in the fall of 1775 disabuses uh, the colonists of the, the illusion that he is, you know, secretly on their side. And so by July, the, the breach has been made. Uh, it is no longer a, a, a war to, to preserve our English liberties. It is a war to create a new nation. And then... 
on July 17, 1776, upon the balcony of the old State House, one of the great historical buildings in Boston, is read, including one of the officers who so objected to Henry Knox. He reads uh, the Declaration of Independence to a huge crowd assembled uh, uh, before him. You know, now that we have the depression of the artery, we have the same view from there uh, down to Long Wharf, where just you know, more than a year before, Thomas Gage and those British regulars had first arrived. And you know, in, in the crowd is Abigail Adams, who, who describes how, uh, you know, this exultant crowd burns the, the, uh, the king's arms that adorn the courthouse in a great bonfire and, and ends her, let, her account with, and we shall all say, Amen. And thus ends, uh, you know, in, in I think, you know, a, a truly thematic way, the siege of Boston and begins the next chapter of the revolution. And I just, uh, in conclusion, I have to say, this book, um, Bunker Hill, really got under my skin in a way that I hadn't anticipated. Um, characters like Washington, oh my gosh, I mean, the depths and the complexities of what he had to confront. I realized I cannot stop here. And so um, Bunker Hill is the first in a trilogy. Uh, the book I'm working on now is Saratoga, uh, and uh, we'll then eventually take it to Yorktown. Uh, but, it, you know, so the, for me, the adventure continues because, I, you know, I got to see how this is going to end up. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>